This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to episode 124 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and today my guest is one of the funniest comedy actors of all time, who this year has reminded many of us that he's also very adept at drama, the great Vince Vaughn. The 46-year-old first crossed the radar of many film buffs more than two decades ago as a straight-faced, motor-mouthed man-child in Swingers, the 1996 L.A. set comedy written by and co-starring his friend John Favreau. He would go on to play variations of that comedic persona in some of the most popular comedies of the 21st century, including 2003's Old School, 2004's Dodgeball, A True Underdog Story, and Starsky and Hutch, and 2005's Wedding Crashers. While he's continued to make comedies of varying quality in the years since, he's also increasingly gravitated toward dramatic parts, first with a powerful turn in the 2006 dramedy The Breakup, then with a small part in Sean Penn's 2007 drama Into the Wild, and later in 2015's second season of True Detective on HBO. In 2016, he gave one of his best performances yet in Mel Gibson's massively acclaimed drama Hacksaw Ridge, playing the key supporting part of Sergeant Howell, a military man who oversees and ultimately goes into battle alongside a soldier who refuses to touch a gun. Over the course of a long and in-depth conversation at the London West Hollywood Hotel, Vaughn and I talk about a wide variety of topics, including how he and Favreau struck up a friendship on the set of his first film, 1993's Rudy, that led to a friendship in Los Angeles that largely inspired swingers, how Hollywood studios didn't even regard him as funny and resisted casting him in comedies until after Old School and Dodgeball already were in the can, what it was that he and the other members of the so-called frat pack brought to their comedies that people hadn't seen before and that made them so special. Why he ultimately grew tired of doing those sorts of comedies and very deliberately fought to move away from them, starting with the breakup. How he professionally lost his way a bit in the years thereafter and what it's been like to find it again through Hacksaw Ridge. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
Go to your happy price, price line. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Vince, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. And to begin with, we always just ask on this podcast, where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? Gosh, I was born in outside of Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I only lived there for less than a year because my father was a, a manufacturer's rep for toys. So he got transferred then to Chicago. And then I moved there. So I was born in Minneapolis and then I was raised in Illinois. And I feel like I grew up here in California because I moved out here when I was 18. 18, yeah. And my before mom was a real estate agent younger, uh, yeah. Now, before we talk about that move, I just am curious, what, what sort of a kid were you? I would have assumed that you were maybe the class clown, but I read trying to you know prepare for this that you were actually pretty shy. Younger, I think like all kids... I remember kind of being shy. I, I think I always had a sense of humor, but, you know, certain environments or elements, you would be shy. I remember one time my grandfather was a dairy farmer, had a little 100-acre farm in Ohio, and he used to work on the railroads. He lied about his age and said he was younger than he was because he liked the farm work, but it was the only way to keep it going. But I found him to be kind of this big-statured man, intimidating. He was a big guy and very physically strong. And I remember going out there, we drove from the suburbs mm -hmm. and we were studying the pilgrims at the time. So it was in Ohio, so it was like rolling hills and we came upon some Amish people and I thought they were pilgrims. I made a comment <laughs> and I said, gosh, we're stuck behind these pilgrims. And my dad got really mad at me, pulled the car over and he said, don't you ever say that about somebody. I didn't, I wouldn't try and make fun no, of him. He was no. like, He's like, you're no better than they are, and these people are nice people. I just, I didn't know what they were. I never heard of them. So when we get to my, my grandfather's farm, and they had to pull up the fence because they were bringing in the, the cows. He had some cows. I remember sitting there. I was real shy. I kind of wanted to, you know, talk to him. He's my grandfather, yeah. but they were talking sports or something. I was kind of standing there, and then he said to me, "Try one of these cookies. You, you want one of these cookies?" So I was just so excited. He was talking to right, me. Right. I grabbed one of the cookies. And it tasted terrible. It was a homemade cookie. I hated the taste of it. So I tasted it, and they kept talking. But I liked so much that he paid attention to me. But I was so shy, like I didn't, I didn't know how to respond to him, I guess. So I remember like a kid, you have a mind like an ostrich. I did anyway. Right. And I figured, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll drop the cookie on the floor. <laughs> and I'll sweep it underneath this little rug that was underneath right. me on the floor. It was like a wood floor with these little mats. And I just stood over it. But then I thought, that's it. They can't see the cookie. Right. So then I, it made me feel good to walk up and grab another cookie. Because then I was like kind of showing out. He goes, oh, see, he loves them cookies. He goes, he loves them cookies. And now he likes it. And I remember smiling. And I must have done it about three times. And each one I would like fake a bite and I put them all underneath the mat. So when I left, they had to go, that kid's, who is that guy? That, that kid's so crazy. Funny. He must have mashed all of his... Things under the floor. But now, it's funny how when you ask that question, those stories they come, come back to yeah. you. And, and I wonder, do you think that getting into performing of, of, of one sort or another was, was the result of being 
the youngest, there's three kids, the old, you know, the older two, maybe it's just clamoring for attention or something. Do you think that had something to do with it? I'm sure there's truth in it. I, I, I haven't analyzed it too much, although I, I've heard you know, always the middle child makes you very aware of birth orders. Right. <laughs> it's true in our family. And I think I do fall some of the yeah. cliches of that circumstance, but there's lots of reasons for it. But one of them, I think, was probably just you, you, you enjoyed it and it's a place you felt comfortable. Mm-hmm. And so I like that. And it started in what, like high school? When did you first actually? I first started, I was maybe seven because we moved, uh, we almost moved to Queens. My dad commuted for a year, but then we ended up staying in Chicago. So we moved and both my parents worked. So in the summertime, they'd find activities. I played a lot of sports and stuff. And one of the things my mom really liked the arts, my dad loved movies. My mom really liked dancing and plays and stuff. So she she put me in this community theater, which was kids doing musicals. And we would ad-lib the lines we kind of ad-libbed the lines, but we'd learn all the songs. And I joined late, so I was in the chorus of South Pacific. That was the beginning. <laughs> but I really enjoyed it, and so that was something that I did as one of the many activities as a kid. Love of movies, and, right. and my parents were good. I'd go to plays a lot and, and see things, and I think even the school district I was in, then we moved. Eventually, Lake Forest had good, uh, like a, a smaller town, nice suburb there, and, and interesting public schools. And we would go to a lot of, we exposed to a lot of stuff there as well. So close to the city, had great museums and go see concerts and things. When do you think it, it first occurred to you that this was something you would want to pursue professionally? Because I know that by the time you graduated from high school, I think that almost exactly coincided with this, with this first advertisement that you got for Chevy is that right yeah I did that earlier before graduation but yes you know I just kept I thought I would be younger I kind of thought I would do it I remember younger thinking I was going to do I'd be drawing things in my room saying I'm going to work on these things and then I went through a period where I I did it through junior high and I hosted talent shows and do plays and then I took a little bit of time off and then I got back into I got in a pretty bad car accident I ended up being okay but I really dove into Again, as soon as I could drive, I started going down to the city, which wasn't far in Chicago. And I started with Del Close, who started Second City, but he was doing a thing called the Improv Olympic. You were studying with him there? When I was in high school. Wow. And I started performing at some of these places when I wasn't, wasn't old enough to be in the bars, but they were very nice to me. I really loved it. And I took, there was a guy named David Darlow, who was a Shakespearean actor, and he had some really interesting summer workshops where you would study movement and stuff one funny thing was younger I also was like on the wrestling team and I played football and my mom signed me up for this dance class which I really liked it was a tap class but I was the only boy and of course it was a beginner's class and I think I was maybe two three years older than the other girls in it so all these girls had these really like you know appropriate young girl right. uniforms and right. I'd go like in a t-shirt and sweatpants <laughs> I was at the local rec center right. And a lot of my guy friends were there playing baseball at the time, and it became the thing to do for some of my friends to come and watch me through the door. <laughs> and usually I was pretty good about kind of doing what I liked. I was, but I, this, it bothered me. I was, I want to say it was maybe nine or ten. Mm-hmm. Maybe I was a little older, more much. But they wanted me to go to the sit, go, go, and they said you should go to a more serious thing. And I remember I let that bother me. And then that, that really bothered me later in life that I kind of let that bother me. And so I really didn't. It was a good thing for me in the long run because it stopped me having any concerns about what anyone would think right, versus right. what was inside of you. But I think as a kid, you you learn those lessons, hopefully. I think you still learn them of kind of engaging in, in what you like. But yeah. in high school, I really, really was fortunate that Chicago had great stuff to train. And there wasn't really like the opportunity that you were going to get discovered for 
a television or film project. It really was about being good in that particular performance. Yeah. So it was a great place to to train. And then there was agents there in town. And as I got older in high school, I got an agent. And then I, I didn't know any better. I started getting these television commercials that yeah. paid more money than I could imagine. Right. I was working as a as a lifeguard, I think, at that point. Right. And I did some telemarketing work. I always worked, you know. Yeah. And the summers and that, and then I couldn't believe the money that I made yeah. from it. But I, I didn't do it for that. I just really loved it. Yeah. And then when I moved out after high school, which you did because you said, "Let's see what I can do." There's more opportunities to do something with this out west. I always knew I really liked it. It was a, it was probably a combination of some failures in other areas. I wasn't. I mean, it was funny because I, I was a terrible student in some subjects, and I was very good right. in others. I had some dyslexia, so there was I learned differently. So mm-hmm. if the, the way that I would learn by watching and doing was really worked for me, but the isolated memorization was was more challenging for me. I remember that I just wanted to keep doing acting and and studying because I loved it, it was fun for me, and I really associated the the classroom with really kind of not being passionate about it. So I, I was fortunate that my parents said, you know, as long as you work hard and you don't lie to yourself and you're trying, they could see I always, you know, try hard, they said. You should follow whatever you want in life. Wow. I just feel how lucky I was. Yeah. I think because both my parents, my, both my mom and dad were raised by single moms. Yeah. They both came from very challenging economic backgrounds. And my dad ended up doing very well. Mm-hmm. So I was very fortunate that they, and my mom worked when a lot of women didn't work. So I was just fortunate that they had, for whatever reason, self-generated by both of them, a belief to kind of follow stuff, if you a real work ethic, but to, to not, you know do things for the, because you think you're supposed to, that you would learn that if you did something, it would lead you to something. They probably yeah. believed that it would lead me back to something different, but they thought it was worthwhile for me to go yeah, and take that journey. Right, yeah. yeah. So when you first got out here, it's the late 80s, mm-hmm. and I just wonder what sort of a long-term future at that point were you imagining for yourself, and what sort of a response were you getting initially in those years pre your first film, uh-huh. What sort of response were you getting from people out here, the gatekeepers? Well, I thought that originally I would have a lot of opportunity because it being a smaller market in Chicago, I had got a couple commercials and some industrial films. So it's all relative. And I got an agent pretty quick. I just called. I didn't know any better and said, oh, I'd love to see you. And it was an agent over at ICM. I got her number. And uh-huh. she was like, I don't, I, I didn't sign with them. They, yeah, she yeah. said, I don't work. I only work with people who kind of have incoming call. I didn't know what any of it meant. But she liked that I was 18 and calling her, yeah. so she recommended me to someone at a much smaller agency. Yeah. It was next to Pink's Hot Dogs. Yeah. <laughs> but they, were, they took me on, so I was thrilled, and yeah. I got into an acting class right away, and I, I, started, I continued studying mm-hmm. you know, right from the beginning. And that was really, I didn't know anyone, so I was 18, other kids I grew up with in college, and I was thrilled to be pursuing this. But yeah. as far as goals, and I think me and my friends talk about it, it was a different time. I, I never went into acting because I thought it was a financially sophisticated right. road. Right. I just really liked it. So I really, like most 18-year-olds, I thought, gosh, if I can get a part, if I can get a couple lines on a show, and I could turn on the TV, and that would be amazing. Like, that would be great if I could get that. And that is how it started out, right? There was- well, I, well the, first year, the first year, I didn't get anything. <laughs> so it was a real good lesson because I think that was a great thing for me because I was by myself in a studio apartment. Had some friends from acting class, but you know, didn't wasn't didn't really you know, it was first year is hard and had some auditions, so I was really fortunate that I at least had the opportunity for some some auditions. Right. 
but I didn't book anything. And so the rejection was so strong and it, it, that it really tested my resolve. And it, I was fortunate that when those things would happen, we're all funny, I think, in our minds. At first, you'd get depressed if you came close to something, right? Because your life could change. And then when it didn't change, you were back at square one. There was no advancement. Right. Because if you got a part and someone could see your work or you got tape, now you'd get into a different category. But if you got close and you didn't get anything, you might as well have never even right. been up for it, right? <laughs> so you're still going up for right. nothing. So it was hard to make that transition. But I got to a point where I would say, gosh, if I take four or five days to kind of feel bad about it, I'll never get those four or five days back. So really that's eight days because right. that could be, you know, days I was working. Right. So I would use it in a way to kind of get me to either read or watch stuff and really would set myself up with a reward system as far as, you know, other people would leave town or do stuff. And I thought, oh gosh, I haven't earned anything. So I was very kind of a self-regulated sort no, of mentality. Yeah. But I was just, just survival. But I think it was a good thing in the long run because it... It gave me the ability to deal with the highs and lows, which you're going to have in, right. in anything in life. I think it gave me a real, you know, gratitude. But but there was never any thought of like the thought was if I could make a living. Right. But I never really thought that in financial terms, as far as there's going to be a lot of right. money or right. we're going to do this. Right. And gosh, there was no conversation of you know parlaying anything into any other kind of businesses. Right. Right. It, it was really just if we could work as actors. But that was fun because all my friends, we'd all talk about you know, the types of movies that we wanted to be in or the types of performances you'd want to give. And, oh, did you go and see this at the New Beverly or did you right. go and see the Charlie Chaplin stuff? And it was far more kind of innocent and excited about, you know, everything was was kind of was kind of exciting. But I don't think anyone really talked. No one really thought much that there was a, an, a financial opportunity. Right. It was really survival. Right. So those first few years, I know there were some... You'd have a few lines on China Beach or you'd have a, a just different little th some after school specials. But it seems like the first thing that must have felt like a big deal was Rudy, the movie that everybody still knows and loves from 1993. You're credited as Vincent Vaughn on that one. You mm -hmm. had a small part. And I, I just wonder how that came about. And also the other significance of it, aside from being your first feature film, was that you made an important friend on that one, right? Mm -mm. It was interesting because I just had a manager at the time. My agents had let me go, and I had a tape from some of the after-school specials or things I had done, and I got cast in this movie, which seemed odd because I never read for it. So here I was. They say you're going to South Bend to play this football player, but I, I never read for it. So one, of, you know, you'd make these tapes and. Right. And they saw my tape, and I guess they were in a time crunch to, to cast it. So I think, as I heard, it was between me and another guy and one of the assistants to one of the guys. I think a girl, young girl made the comment that she thought the other guy was attractive. And so maybe they were threatened by that and went with me. So I probably should thank him for being very good looking. But anyway, I went, and it was really a kind of a game-changing experience just for being on a film for that length. And, you know, starting off doing a movie that's a true story that's really about somebody that had this strong belief that he could be a part of something, even with everything in his life kind of saying to him, no. And yet here he was. It's a true story. He was a walk-on and ended up playing at Notre Dame and making a sack in this game. And it was really this miraculous story. I remember being being really struck by it as a, as a young kid. I think we all have a little bit of that inside of us that 
not to the degree, but that feeling of you keep pursuing something, there's a calling, and, and even though there's no real clear results or path that it's, yeah. that it's there. So it was a great experience from that standpoint yeah. to be there, and it was fun, yeah. And then John? John Favreau? Yeah, Favreau was actually in the Improv Olympic. He was doing, he was a couple years older than me, but I had that in high school, so he, he was out of college, and he was actually participating in it while we were filming. So we had that in common. And I just found him very funny. John's, John's very, very funny. And so you're saying you had met him before the filming? No, or but, only- but, but he, he was involved in the Improv Olympic and improvisational program that I had, that I had done when I was in high school. I got it. So he was out of college. Or never, I don't think he graduated either. And he was there studying in Chicago when he got booked out of Chicago to play gotcha. that part. And then you guys, did you just sort of bump into each other and hit it off or what was yeah, it? Yeah, we became friends when we were there. You know, there was there was a sense of humor and, and stuff that was in common and, our, and then our backgrounds were different, but we were, you know, both kind of would tease each other. I liked that, yeah. you know, so you could, someone wasn't like walking on eggshells or being politically really? correct. They would actually try to humiliate you really? or, or anger you about things that you would care about. Right. That always felt like the start of a good friendship to right, me. Right. And then he moved out to Los Angeles, and he moved out where I, where I lived. He moved into Los Feliz, and I was in Los Feliz and Hancock Park area. So we continued hanging out. He was pursuing acting, and so was I. And I had a good group of friends already out here and had lived in that community and gone to a lot of the places that then became swingers, was just local places. And it was an amazing thing going on at the time in that a lot of these ex-punk rock bands started forming these swing bands. So as a kid, it was an amazing experience to go hear a 14-piece band that could really play right, live. Right, right. It was very, and, the, and by the way, writing, writing original songs. Right. So there was a there was a experience, if you will, in that neighborhood that was authentically happening right. that we had nothing to do with, but I was just, I liked, I always preferred, you know, you would have someone out at that place perhaps that was 70 and then someone that was younger. That's and cool. so it felt more community. You, yeah. You'd have different conversations. The focus of the night was really kind of going out and connecting and having fun and swing dancing and it was there was still a lot of that in LA and then later it became much more of a hot spot or nightclub driven thing but I really liked kind of the neighborhood stuff a lot of my good friends when I was younger I had a friend named Phil Dixon who was a a stand-up comedian writer used to write for Phyllis Diller among other people we became friends I met him at Jerry's Deli in the valley and we used to go over to, he lived in a, an apartment out east a little east of Los Feliz right. and we used to go over there and see him all the time so we, I had friends of, of all ages and, and people and I think that was fairly normal but was it experiences that you and John and your crowd were having that at what point did John say I should write this down and, and do something with this well we just had fun and I think what happened was I, I went to him and said you know, all these screenplays and stuff I'm reading, they're really not in touch with stuff. And I said, I just don't, it's hard. You're auditioning for these parts and whatever. I said, I'm going to write a movie. And I went away to go write a movie. And John, in two weeks, he got a hold of, uh, I think he wrote, he read first The Writer's Journey by Volger, the, uh, the, the, uh, the Dosh of Campbell yeah, yeah. screenwriting adaptation of Here With a Thousand Faces, I believe. And he wrote Swingers kind of based on our experience. I read it, I thought, oh God, he took a lot, I mean, a lot of the stuff that I had said and lines and jokes and stuff was there. And, but the screenplay was very funny and very authentic and simple. And he was a terrific writer. And the script was great. And then we sort of locked arms and we made up our minds that we were going to get it made. He, he, was, he had, it was with UTA at the time. Mm-hmm. We would meet at that Hollywood Hills Diner. It's changed name now. But we'd meet there almost every day. And we would strategize. So crazy to think about it. What happens if this happens and that happens right. and that happens? And so how does Doug Lyman get involved? 
there was many incarnations of reading it to raise yeah. money. It was funny because it read like a, a reading of a, of a play. There'd always be a phenomenal response from the would-be investors, if you will. Yeah. But ultimately, there would be laughs and applause. So it gave us real confidence in the material. It actually served us well in a lot of time to read it in multiple times and spend a lot of time with yeah. it. But none of them would ultimately, you'd get down to whose names means what and how right. do you do it at a price. And we were very strong and not compromising. We didn't want to change the script. And it was we were always going to be you guys in it, right? You well, could've... there was a moment where it might not have been. I mean, uh-huh. I think they offered my part to a couple of names. And if those guys turned it down then I would get to do it. John was advocating for it, but it, it had gotten to, a, and, and, I, and we felt very good that these guys would turn it down. I have to say, John was ultimately, you know, John had an opportunity, I think, to get it made with him playing a different part. Okay. But we were very, you know, believed in the material. There was a version where we didn't go to Vegas, and it was almost foreshadowing. They said, well, what about a woman's point of view in this group? And I said, if these guys had a woman in the group, <laughs> they might be a little more evolved right. than they are, you know? So it was sort of... It was meant to capture an authenticity of that time and of that age and what was going on. So we we didn't want to accommodate that. Right. Uh, and that served us very well. Doug came in and wanted to direct it. And he was able to raise $250,000 to make the movie. We got to play the parts. And we shot it in 21 days. And we were just so prepared. We had read the script out loud for so long and knew the materials. And we really kind of... John and myself and Ron Livingston, who's great, and everyone involved in it, we would kind of regulate each other, you know, tease each other, yeah. you know. Oh, yeah. that sounds like a really nice line reading. <laughs> you know, we would try to make it as authentic as, right. it, as it could be. And we were shooting places that weren't closed. They were, you know, we were shooting in bars where there was people there. And at that age, it was somehow uncool if you were trying. Right, right, right. Like, if you were trying hard to do right. something, right. You, you, it was not cool. So I remember... <laughs> We were at the places and people were rolling their eyes at us right. like we didn't get it. Right. But you'd have, we were performing the scenes and, you know, doing it with, with stuff going on. But that all ended up actually adding to it. And Doug brought, you know, a fantastic visual to it. He yeah. shot the whole thing himself. He found a camera that did not need a, need a lot of light. Yeah. A lot of it was handheld. And so it all kind of came together. I think everyone brought different aspects that made it uniquely what it was. And we shot that movie. And then I think there was something about the... The genuineness, I, I think it's true for all things. If you, it was the culture, right? So if you can get, if you can get something, maybe the language or the dress or the music or some of the rituals or customs yeah. within a certain group. Yeah. But at the core of it is guys kind of coming of age, right? In this case, it's someone feeling his self-value, getting past a hurt and moving on, yeah. giving himself permission. That could happen in lots of different places. But because it was so unique where we were... I think that that added to the, the world being so kind of interesting. And that's something that I've, I've, that stuck with me later throughout is recognizing that, that, you know, sometimes if you can have worlds or, or customs or language that's interesting, right. it can make for a very advantage for a story because you get to enjoy the aesthetics and the rituals of yep. whatever world you're stepping into, even if it's not, you know, mythical or supernatural. No, and you feel that with some of your movies, when you, whether you're in Chicago or whatever, you te- you, the, the customs, the, it seems like the specific can feel like universal. And, and we should remind people that this movie that was made for, like you said, just 250000 ended up making, I think, $4.5 million and took off, I think, even more on VHS over the years. And here we are 21 years later, and it continues to be a favorite of people who 
you know, they only know dating in the Tinder era and it's like looking at a period piece it really is but it's, it's amazing it's, it's probably true you know? i never heard it put that way but you're right <laughs> becomes kind of an archive yeah. of older people yeah. yeah to that point that we didn't know that it was a success it didn't feel like it did that it well didn't. as far as our what the box office was right. i mean we made the movie to get into sundance right. and we didn't get in right oh they turned you down we turned it down but we kept, we continued believing in it you know, it, we continued to work and believe in it. And then uh, uh, Miramax had bought it prior to that, and then they released it. And it was kind of a humble box office. It wasn't, but I think it just, it's one of those things that I think that happens is it got into the culture. Yes. The lines and stuff that we used to say amongst us as friends and things I used to say now became yeah, cultural things that are still used today. And I think the, the, the music, the clothes, the vibe, it just, they became into the culture. And I think when you can get into the culture with a film... It's a, it's a different thing. Even when something does a lot of money or becomes a big movie, right. it's not it's not the same as something becoming part of the fabric of whatever that community or or, or, or larger community is. And you've had that a number of times. I mean, this is a rare, rare thing. But whether in this case, I don't know what what you get back the most, whether it's like beautiful babies or whatever, and then all the way through earmuffs and right. all the thing. I mean, it's got a, that's a pretty it's a pretty big compliment when people you know, respond and take it into their own lives like that. But what I'm wondering is just a year after, like you said, you guys are sitting at diners trying to get this thing off the ground for no money. Nobody's accepting you. It's, it's, they don't, they don't want you in the roles. They don't want to give you the money, all of this stuff. A year later, you're working for Steven Spielberg in the lost world, Jurassic Park sequel. Did it feel like, you know, like things exploded for you? You know, when I was younger, I was so driven at that point to do kind of character stuff in, in movies. I had loved Steven Spielberg's movies, and it was very flattering that he called. And I remember having so much fun with Steven because I'd go to Amblin, and we would sit and talk about Westerns. And I'm a big fan of Westerns, and he has a huge knowledge on movies. So I, it was an audition process, but I remember just going there and really excited to talk to Stephen about movies. Yeah. He was really passionate and very informed and great perspective. We'd have conversations. And Could you even believe, though, you're sitting here with Steven Spielberg like a year at ago? First it felt, at first it <laughs> felt strange, but I, I was a fan of his films. Yeah. You know, I mean, Jaws was one of those movies that really impacted me. I was terrified of a swimming pool. I saw it when I was very young. And Close Encounters, I thought, was just magical. E.T., so many... Movie, so it, these were things that kind of sparkled, yeah. right? These were, these were kind of mystical journeys. So I was thrilled, and he was very welcoming, and including, mm-hmm. and that felt nice. You know, yeah. here's a guy who really, kind of met you where you were at, and just was kind of discussing and having fun. So that was fun. And then when I shot the movie, I remember it was such a bigger production, going from one extreme to the next. You know, in doing that. And then I remember coming out of that and really making up my mind that I didn't want to do studio films and that I really wanted to stay on a trajectory of doing character stuff, which I did all the way up until for another six or so years, I think I really just did. I turned down, remember, I turned down a bunch of different studio films and my agents who I signed with at UT at the time. They're getting pissed. <laughs> they were kind of supportive, actually. It was okay. interesting. But they were saying to me, yes, in their own way. But I didn't really, I, I know, I think there's something about being young. Yeah. That's, you know, both, you wouldn't do certain things, it's good, but it's also maybe you don't have perspective. So it's, you know, it is just your journey. So Why were you resisting studio film? I just didn't like them. I thought that somehow they felt inauthentic to me. So, you know, I was doing Return to Paradise and Clay Pigeons and... Well, there's one also in there, right in that period that I've got to ask you about, because 
it took a lot of flack, but it must have seemed like a very interesting, unique acting challenge, which is doing the Psycho remake for Gus Van Zandt. I mean, here you're playing this iconic character, Norman Bates, and it almost was bound from the start to get crap from people because how do you top a, a classic? But did what was it about that? That was it? Just working with Gus that that attracted you to that? I did not have the wherewithal to even understand. You know, I was still I think in my mid twenties to even understand that this would be some kind of big ordeal to remake that movie. But to your point, I remember going to the New Art Theater and seeing Drugstore Cowboy as an unemployed actor. And then, of course, there was Private Idaho. So I just liked the films he was making yeah. and what he was doing. And I didn't care what the movie was. I thought it was interesting to work with Gus. And then I was confused in the process of it. Uh, it was a great experience, ultimately. But there was times where I felt, you know, we were going to, it was going to be, there was times where we would watch a scene and try to physically do what they did. Right. But then there'd be a couple of times where we didn't do that exactly. Right. So it was a little bit kind of, it was an interesting experiment. It felt kind of Warhol-ish right. to me in that the approach was even unfamiliar to me for how I would normally build right. a performance. Because you were kind of, I didn't want to watch stuff, but then it was, it, it turned out to be a great exercise for me as an actor because I was forced to work from a place so different. And then of course, when the movie came out, I always felt like the, you know, the arts or movies or music that they're not religion in that song could be sang by someone else you're not erasing the original one so i i never took that perspective on it i just thought it was material to to reinterpret i had seen psycho and really liked it but i, I didn't see it as a competition and i knew that this was obviously an important movie for gus for whatever reasons younger so it was more trying to understand and fit into his journey i was also very young so it was just a different approach you yeah. know so I, that was, it was interesting. It's nice to get into to things that are different and yeah. and go through them. But yes, there was a kind of a real, uh, how dare they, <laughs> by some people, which I just didn't, I, yeah. I understand it as I'm older now, but right. I still didn't understand to some Everybody degree. Was. It wasn't like a sacrilege as if people were going, we don't like this, or right. it clearly wasn't, you know, trying to cash in on it. Right. You know, of it wasn't like, not. hey, no, we're, just, no. we're just looking to remake something because it's a good brand, you right. know, like today... Yeah, today they were like, how do you get an IP through the marketplace? <laughs> it wasn't that at the time. Right. So yeah. remember, I went with Vigo to, I took Vigo to go see uh, Buck Owens in Bakersfield because we <laughs> shot here in Los Angeles. Really? Yeah, at the at the Crystal Palace. Yeah, he well, was he's a great actor. That's what, yeah, he was our last episode. Oh, was uh, yeah, that's Vigo quite a bit. Yeah, nice guy. But one thing I was kind of amazed to read preparing for this was that up until old school, even with old school, which was two thousand three, that's not that long ago. You you're saying that. I think there was Domestic Disturbance, which was a studio movie, and then there was Old School. But Old School was a comedy, and I remember when Todd Phillips wanted to cast me in that, the studio didn't know that I could be funny. That's what I was going for, yeah. It was yeah. Dodgeball. They didn't know that I could do comedy. I think it was an appearance I had on a talk show, right. if I remember it correctly from what Todd said, that the studio saw and said, okay, he can be funny. Because I had done at the time, I was considered like an independent, darker actor right but what happened was when old school came across my desk i thought it was punk rock i thought this is fucking cool <laughs> and it didn't feel like some of the other stuff that i was looking at at the time you know again with young actor yeah. eyes i felt like this doesn't add up to me the theology it just didn't make sense to me but but old school felt like fun and edgy and i really liked it so and then i remember feeling like i thought i couldn't do comedy and i thought that was odd but you um, felt that or that they felt I, that? Well, I had done comedy since I was a right, kid. Right, right. So, I mean, I had done improv younger and 
In fact, I probably could have gone that route, I, but I wanted, I was more interested in exploring acting. Right. But, you know, I had, I think you're all used to that at different times, but what was interesting at the time it was the town saw me in a way where comedy was not something I could do, that I was, yeah. that was good in these kind of, uh, you know, smaller indie films. And then what was it about old school that you think really, uh, I know that you said even by the next movie a year later with Dodgeball, people were still as skeptical about whether... You know, maybe the, I guess this may not might not have been released yet, but when they when Ben was trying to put together Dodgeball, it was still there was some some resistance. Yeah, I had to go to a meeting. I remember I had to meet the studio head and talk to him, which was fine. But right. I just I don't know if there was I had there was a perception that I didn't want to participate in studio movies. Part of that was probably true, but yeah. it wasn't the right ones. And I don't know. I just I never really participated. I kind of you know stayed out east and most fearless in that, and I didn't really you know. I wasn't amongst the the the, the, the networking of right. the community. I just was doing my movie, so I, uh, I just liked the script, and Todd liked me for it. I liked Todd, and we had a great time making it. But you're right; after old school, I didn't pop necessarily before the movie came right. out in a big as big of a way. It was really the but audience then dodgeball. Reaction. But then it sort of started to roll, and then I sort of found my way where I connected to these comedies that were R, right. and that felt like we were pushing boundaries and questioning authority and then it sort of started this run of these that we kind of ripped off a bunch in a row that kind of worked from a, a really kind of I think collaborative place. That's what I want to just remind listeners is is how you know it really gathered steam very quickly where Old School 2003, Dodgeball 2004, Starsky and Hutch 2004, Wedding Crashers 2005, Breakup 2006. That's an incredible run and I just are you able to step outside of yourself for a minute and just sort of as a as objectively as possible, look at yourself and say, what was it that you were doing that people weren't seeing before? Is it the sort of the, that they responded to? Is it the ability to do this improv in a way that we weren't seeing before that? Or, or why did people suddenly fall in love with you there? I think that we were just of the right age, you know, to be telling those stories. And I was with the right people, both Owen, David Dobkin, obviously Todd Phillips, you know, Stiller with Dodgeball, and I was just, we were just all kind of of the age, and, and we were kind of like a, a band that was like, hey, this sounds cool to me, right. and there was a defiance to it, where we were just kind of doing what we liked. I remember with Old School, we would sit around with Todd, and, and him and Scott Armstrong had written the script, and Todd's very funny, but he's also, he's not a shock guy to shock you, but he's not thinking of, who how do I not offend anyone either? He's kind of making it for his taste and his friends and I shared similarities so he would drive you in directions that were funny and then I'd come up with stuff that was funny and all yeah. of us really contributed and then Dodgeball I think was written for me and I added some elements to the character but that script that script more so than most of them was kind of a great completed script it had gone through development drafts right. and there's some improv in it but that one was pretty pretty on base when we got there uh, Rawson had written that and then with Crashers, the concept was good. Me and Owen had always kind of been dancing around each other because we had done Starsky and Hutch, but you know, I wouldn't. The... So then when that came about, Owen's a very good writer and funny. Mm -hmm. And David Dobkin and of course Andrew Panay, the producer, was great. We were all similar in age, and it was the same kind of thing where we would kind of pitch and give ideas and write stuff, and David and really organize it all. And and we kind of you know before shooting, we really rewrote that screenplay yeah. and custom made it yeah. for stuff that we liked. 
And just were kind of off the radar. You know, at the time, when we were doing an R movie, it was a real question, like, that uh, Dodgeball was not R, old school was, mm -hmm. and then this was going to be. And New Line was kind of badass because they were always just kind of studio right. that were kind of not doing what everyone else was, right. Right. whether it was horror or whether it was... You know, just different kinds of films. And I remember thinking it was interesting because there were studio execs that were directing and writing there. You know, they, they were their own unique place. So we were kind of left alone at New Line to, cope, to go make that movie. And we knew we had made something funny yeah. and believed in it. But we were just trying to make each other laugh. And again, we weren't worried about offending anyone or, you know, we weren't, we weren't overcomplicated. We weren't trying to be socially conscious. Right. We, were just, we were literally just trying to be like funny and inappropriate. Yeah, yeah we yeah. want to be inappropriate. Yeah. And that was fun. Is that the one, if you were to, you know, based on people coming up to you or whatever? It's hard to say because, yeah. you know, all of them, it's, you know, old school yeah. swingers. Yeah. They all have their, they've all kind of survived in their ways, including dodgeball and the breakup even. Well, that's where I want to go next because I think that. Well, that's where my plan ended. That was intentional. So I had started doing these now. Now I had had a run of these, these are movies right. and they were fun. And then I thought, well, gosh, I'll make the transition on screen. It was my original idea. I had never done a romantic comedy, funny enough. I, I always got the scripts and thought, I don't know any relationship like these, and why is the guy going and begging the girl to be with him? Right. It just wasn't my experience. <laughs> right. Not to say that, that you're not vulnerable in relationships, but it was always followed this kind of thing that I always felt those aren't the relationships that I knew. Right. So I said, well, what about the breakup? What about like the anti-romantic comedy <laughs> where they really don't get up back together, which was my initial thought. So Jay Lavender and Jeremy Gerlich, and I was sort of like, it was an intentional end of that run, if you will. Yeah. So I said, they won't end up together and end. I said, we'll be real funny and do it comedically. But then at the end, I, I had a theme in my mind, which was sometimes you have to really love someone or have a very strong connection with them even when you know you shouldn't be with them or, or that it's run its course, you can't leave. Right. Because they'll complement some insecurities or vulnerabilities in yourself. And I had, had a couple of relationships with strong connections where you didn't end up with that person. You couldn't end up with that person. Right. If you would have met them after you had gone through the ordeal, you might have had a chance with each other. Right. But you, you needed to go through that in order to, to grow if you would accept that and then go on your next journey. So your life has these people that meant so much to you, who you had a strong connection to, you wouldn't have stayed in it if you didn't, that ultimately now you can't spend time with, that you're not going to be around. Right. So I was really investigating that connection where you kind of hurt each other and both come from your own perspective and don't realize in protecting yourself that you're actually causing problems. And you don't end up together, but show that at the end, they're better for it, right? So, that was the intention. And so in a sense, I mean, you, you co-wrote the story, you produced it, you did it in your own hometown of Chicago. Th did this one feel, and I think you did some of your, your best acting in it also. I love that movie. Mm -hmm. And I just wondered, does that, does that one feel more personal to you than others? Does it stand out to you more when you look back? Not necessarily. I think it's all these movies did in a way. I mean, yeah. people don't remember. I think I think old school might be sixty percent fresh on Rotten Tomatoes now, but it wasn't that <laughs> until time went on and it survived. Right. Like people were offended by. Right. I mean, some of the critics at B, I think, were reviewing the versus just saying these are idiot guys and trying to relive a college. Right. And it's funny. I think there was a little bit of 
an evaluation from like a place of what's mentally healthy, right. <laughs> which was odd. Right. I remember Phillips one time, we got an award years later from MTV and he read one of the reviews on stage. <laughs> Todd is so funny with that. Right. But with Breakup was the same thing. There was a real, I, I went to, I had known these guys when I lived in Chicago that were from these Polish neighborhoods. Right. And it was always unique to me that those neighborhoods were still Polish right. and not by coincidence. Right. Right. So... I just found that to be, again, an interesting world. And they would really hang out with other Polish people. They did not have friends from other cultures. God forbid their, their sisters would ever go out with anyone who wasn't Polish. Right. And yet they were fine to date people that right. weren't Polish, you know? <laughs> so I kind of, I, I like to have something in my head yeah. to kind of base it on. Uh, Jeremy Gerlich, who's a great writer, and Jay Lavender, they had written a script that finally got made called The Wedding Singer with Kevin Hart ended up playing the part mm -hmm. and uh, oh, yeah, I saw it, yeah. and the director, uh, Jeremy, directed it. But these two young guys wrote it and Todd Phillips was going to direct it and I was going to star in it, but we ended up not making it. But I had liked the script, so I said, well, you guys come in and write this thing with me on spec. Mm -hmm. So we locked ourselves in the house for six months. And we took it around and there was two things. The studios, we said when I first signed on, people at the studio running it and said, Will you be open to maybe at the ending? I said, I'll be open to it. I'll go through, open. But I if it doesn't feel right, I don't right. want to be made right. to do it. Right. And I wanted it to be R. And they said, well, can it be PG-13? And I agreed to it being PG-13. Mm -hmm. I, I, I love the movie. And I think it's a pretty pushed PG-13. But mm -hmm. I do regret us not going completely with language and stuff all the way. I find it crazy when you're talking about you know, adult conversations where sex is in the conversation. Right. And I don't, I don't know why the board is the way it is, but it is. So for some, for whatever reason, swearing becomes right, right. more of a, more of a, of a problem than other things, but that's the rules. Right. So I, I regretted it later, although I, I, as I say that, I, I think that I so liked, I wish we would have stayed R. And that was, a, that was something that came to haunt me later in my career. But, but then the ending was the thing that was kind of in play, but not. So we took the journey, and the movie plays really funny, got huge laughs, everything. Yeah. Jen came on board. I had thought of her for it because she's so good with comedy, but there's also a real genuineness to her. Did you know each other before the movie? No, I didn't no. know her. I just felt like when I looked around, I thought, she's very funny, but I thought she's a very good actress as yeah. well, and, yeah. a, and a nice compliment. So we we shot it in Chicago and, and made the movie. And again, I was really defiant to what those guys would be. Right. And again, I was surprised where some of the response was at the time was critiquing the guy's choices socially, but clearly we were depicting, uh, you know, by choice it was a single mom, right. it's three right. brothers, right. there's not good community. It was D'Onofrio and <laughs> Kohauser, there's not good communication right. between them. Right. Like you were, you, were, you were showing the seeds of what the collision was between these right. two people. Right. But I remember as an actor thinking to myself, I didn't have a plan after that. I said, I'll go from being funny to ending dramatically on screen. Mm -hmm. And the character that's always kind of been in different incarnations of fun and it works out or this, it's not going to work out. And I saw it in a way where girls were concerned, like, what if the girl, and some do, and not all, like all relationships, but could have that person and be strong enough to walk away from him. I saw it really more from the girl's mm -hmm. journey that she would be able to turn to this guy and realize mm -hmm. that there was no going back, even though there's a lot of great things about him that you would like, that enough hurt was done, even though it wasn't malicious, that you could not return. And so I had the character finally understand these things in life because he's not 
like a lot of people, he's not, he's self-protective and he's unaware and he doesn't have any skills, but he does love her. And I just thought it would be interesting to have him come full circle and have it kind of love has left town, if you will. And then we had to decide the right note to end it. And there was a version where they showed where there was the potential more so of getting together. It felt very false in seeing it. And thankfully they agreed as promised. And we found the ending the original ending was exactly like that, except a more comedic version right. of that ending versus honoring it. What happened was the audience was so kind of caught up in their journey and leaving it, we kind of left it more simple that they would, that moment of when you run into each other, here's these people you've shared so much with, right. you're in different places, there's a love there. But you know if they go back, I kind of left it open, but the thought would be, you go back, do you fall back in those same patterns? It's not so not so easy, but at least you're forever changed. But I remember as an actor feeling that's the end of it. Like, I'm done with these comedies, and I'm going to move on after this to other things. I think it's a fantastic movie, and what a way to end that period of your of your career. But I, the thing that, that I really learned preparing for this was, was that in 2006, right after that, when I would have assumed you felt like you're on top of the world, you could do whatever you want, you were actually feeling a bit of boredom with your career and mm-hmm. maybe concerned that you were typecasting yourself into this, which would be hard to escape from. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of arrested development man-child thing, which people love, but which you maybe had more greater aspirations. And you said at the time, quote, I could keep trying to do these same kind of comedies you know how it's going to go and you can get an audience with it. But then I feel like a hamster on a wheel, close quote. So and so I'd love for you to talk about that period where you were feeling something that probably most people couldn't even see or imagine that you would be feeling. But I didn't follow through on it, meaning I really designed the breakup to go from comedy on screen to drama versus just stepping into a drama. So you would take the trans- the audience would take the transition with you, right? And also do something I hadn't seen. I hadn't seen that movie and I thought it was valid. But I didn't have a plan after that. And I, I sort of had a plan, but what happened was David Dopkin called me, who I had done Clay Prisons with Younger, which I love as a film, right. and then Wedding Crashers. And he was very passionate for this movie, Fred Claus. And I never understood it as strongly as David did, right. who I think is, you know, one of my favorite collaborators mm-hmm. and storytellers and but it wasn't where my spirit was at the time. Right. But I kind of went into it. I remember my agents and my manager at the time were saying, well, this is good. It's a, you're going to pay you this and that. And so instead of going where my instincts were, right. going back to before I started this run, where I wasn't doing studio movies, I kind of found this hard art comedy to, 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 to drive on. Now I sort of felt like it was an end. Then I started this journey a little bit of jumping into these movies without the same plan or passion or connection that I I felt for what this run was. And I just throw one thing in there. I I just want to say, so for people that are looking at that period immediately after when we're talking about, it suddenly becomes a little harder to understand some of, not in a negative way, but like a little eclectic. So you're doing small supporting parts in 2005 film, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Mm -hmm. And where you were playing Brad Pitt's boss. Then you're in, Sean Penn's 2007 film, Into the Wild, where you're Emil Hirsch's boss. You then, in 2009, reunited with Favreau on Couples Retreat. Mm-hmm. And then in 2013 with Owen Wilson on The Internship. Mm-hmm. So it seems like you yourself were trying to figure out how do you fully make this transition? I think what happened to me was then after the breakup, you, we started this, I was kind of, 
more booking jobs and not working from that same catalyst of I really believe in this and we all want to make the same movie. So there becomes a honeymoon period, I think, where they say, let's get a start date. You're not done with the script. You may not even all share the same ideas, Mm -hmm. but they all want to get going. And then you get there and you may not have the same ideas of what the movie should be or land there and it becomes a lot of catch-up work as you're going and then nobody's happy because you're not going in with a strong of a mission statement. So I did not, I think it really boils down to, I I had a plan when I was doing this stuff younger, then when it came, once old school hit, I knew that what I was doing in those kinds of movies, the breakup was intentional transformation and then after that, there became a continuum, completely something that my choice is, but I look back at it, I wasn't as conscious or saying, what am I excited about or where am I going? It was more, okay, yeah, I'll come do this, I know you. And some of it became from a production company side, which is, okay, well, we have these expectations to make a movie, so what's a concept that would be a big concept so and drive you on? You had your own production company at this point. Yes. You felt you need to be churning out stuff. Well, I think, I think what happens is you start, people are working for you and with you, and it becomes sort of the thing. So you say, let's gear up and go. But I just wasn't at that time as defiantly connected to the stories or a calling. I was more kind of taking jobs. I, yeah. I isolated. I had a moment. I was doing Clay Pigeon's Younger, and Scott Wilson was in the movie. And Scott Wilson was in, in Cold Blood and In the Heat yeah. of the Night. He's a terrific actor. Yeah. And I remember he was talking to me and I said, I wouldn't do these movies and these movies and, and you know, talking these movies. And he told a story younger how the first two scripts that he kind of got hot with was In Cold Blood and In the Heat of the Night. Mm-hmm. And he said nothing else was good compared to those. So I passed on everything. This is Scott's telling the yeah. version of it, which he shared. So it was good advice, I felt. And then he said that Hackman, who had done Bonnie and Clyde, yeah, I believe, yeah, was, yeah. was booking and doing jobs. And... Scott said, why are you doing those movies? I've read those scripts are not as good. And, and he said that Hackman's point of view was an actor's job is to work. Mm-hmm. Not everything is going to be great. you gotta, you got to work. And that moved me a little bit to realize that everything's not going to be whatever. So you, you do have to work. And that, that sort of nudged me into going into that run that we Some talked of those about. Others, yeah. So I think I still have that mentality. I was going into jobs that I wasn't as excited about. In hindsight, in hindsight, I was at the PG thirteen. They were going for larger audiences. You know, you're you're combining too many elements. You're not working from that place. Swingers, this is something we believe in. Let's go do this old school. We don't care. I don't know who's going to see it. But But was so was Scott Wilson right? I think there's a combination. I think you do need to work, but I think at the same time, I think at our best in life, forget forget acting. I think if you're conscious and you're aware of where you're at and 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 what you're excited about doing, that can always change. But I think, I think having a plan or being connected to your experiences and reflecting on them is different than if you're just kind of going through motions and you're not paying attention, right, right. you know, whether that's your personal life or your, or your work life or, you know, parenting, sure. anything. I think you're better off if you're kind of reflecting and going, what is, what is inside of me? Right. Sometimes you go through runs like that. And then other times you wake up after a period and say, I don't know that I, what I was thinking. I'm right. not... I'm not really sure what my priorities were because you get so busy and you're bouncing around, you kind of stop checking in and going, right. what am I excited about? And you do have people saying, oh, let's go do this or do right. this. And sometimes within that, you don't get the opportunity, I think for, this is not just actors, I think people in life, right. to go with inside yourself and see kind of where are you motivated to go. So with all that noise and jumble of things that were going on at the time where you were still figuring out what you what, what you wanted to do, along comes True Detective. 
And yeah, afterwards, what, what happened first was, um, you know, I had the idea for the internship and I went to Dan Levine, who I love, and, and Sean Levy, who's terrific. And again, the studio, I, it was really, originally going to be an R and O and we were going to shoot it. And then in the middle of shooting, after we started shooting, the studio asked to change it P three thirteen. It wasn't what I had signed up for, but I have been been through battles before, and you can't win. So, if, once you're on a movie and you're going, if you fight for the things you believe in, I think sometimes you can be right, but uh, they don't want to hear it. So there's this odd moment I think in any relationship where you want to really define: Are we all doing the same thing here? Sometimes there's an excitement to go, and you're not, and you're, and you're having different expectations. So in that moment, I said to, and, I, and, and some of them agreed with me, I said, I think this is a mistake. It doesn't feel as fun. And we ended up shooting a little bit both ways. That felt not great. Right. And I think it was, forget even the result of the movie working or not, I think it was a bad place to work from. It was a wrong choice for where we should have, something like that to do. And I was in a tough spot because here we were filming right. and I felt, you know, opposite of, other than just walking off, which would have been valid, you, you go along with it. But these were all good lessons for me. Yeah. I learned from all of these experiences, right. both good and bad, right. about a lot of it being done, not getting into stuff in, unless you're really clearly defined. Right. And there's this time where you're picking dates and you're going and maybe everything, everyone's not ha sharing the same idea. When, when True Detective came around, so there was a run of this. Now, I, then I get married and I have kids. What year did you get married? I've been married for seven years. Wow, okay. So that became my priority. Sure. I had moved back to Chicago. Yeah. There's a thing that goes on when you have kids. It's very odd where, where you go, oh, I have my kids and what am I going to do? And for some reason, that seemed to make sense for me, although I love California and I love being out here. My closest friends are from California. Right. But I went back for a while. And in doing so... I was more booking jobs. I wasn't self-generating material, and I wasn't really being sitting down, and my focus wasn't on it. My focus was more my daughter and how to parent and then or my marriage. And, you know, I had waited to get married. How do you make this thing work? Right. And what is a good father and right. husband and working at... This was more top of mind. And so you would go and do these, these movies, and some of them were very good people and some of them fun movies and stuff. But I, I wasn't... I wasn't as focused or having a plan again in that time. So when True Detective came across my desk, I had liked the first season, and I had already known the writer, Nick Pizzolatto. I think he is a, a very, very uh, rare talent and a very interesting combination. He's very academically intelligent and very well-read, but he also has this very kind of blue-collar and visceral experience in life. So it's, he's an interesting combinations of things that don't always live together. He sent it to you because he knew you or he knew that you wanted to do more dramatic stuff or how did that even come about? We almost had worked together at one point and then the first season of True Detective yeah. took, happened for him. Yeah. And so he came to me in his uh, carnation for what would be the second season. And I was thrilled, again, for me it was working with Nick and doing that material. So I was excited to go do that with him. And it wasn't specifically, I want to now be no longer Vince Vaughn, the, the, the comedy man, but Vince Vaughn, the dramatic man. Was it, was it as, as conscious as that? I don't know that I was totally conscious at that point yeah. either. I just knew Nick. I liked him. Right. I thought that the material that he wrote was very good. I liked what he did with the first season. Yeah. I wasn't consciously making it turn into drama. I was sort of bouncing around, but he was a guy that I really responded to and I really right. liked, and I wanted to work with him. And I, I don't know that I always take a broader perspective of how we're playing. That may be a healthy thing to do, but I, I wasn't balancing things. I wasn't, if you were in a Ben Franklin pro-con right, right, way, I wasn't right. doing it from that place. So 
I was excited to kind of work with him. And it was less about doing a drama or proving something right. to myself. Because I, I felt, like, again, younger I had done mainly drama. Yeah. It was more, okay, this is where we're at. Has your success with comedy, do you think, made it a higher hurdle to get people to give you the opportunity to do drama or to accept you in drama or or any of that? Or do you do you feel like you have to go even you have to go the extra mile to even be accepted in in that context? It, it very well could be. I, I don't I can't qualify that or even understand it. And I don't know how good it is sometimes to even think about it. Yeah. Only from the standpoint that what do you do with it? Right. Then you put yourself in a position, I think, where you're trying to think how people are seeing you. Mm -hmm. And that's really bad because you're, you're chasing some kind of approval that's not really based on what you're liking and you have no control over it. Right. Right. So for me, I was more wanting to work with Nick. I think the things that you're saying probably have validity to it. Certainly, having gone through stuff now, I think people those things are all true. But I wasn't as... A pool shot, an angle, if you will, a strategist about it. I was just kind of let's let's go do this. And what I thought was interesting with Nick was he had done the first season, which is really kind of a buddy cop, and that's two people and a protagonist. Yeah. The the structural attempt was very interesting. That you have four leads, not as much humor. It was you know I really liked that it was more of a tip to L.A. noir yeah. than Southern Gothic. And I thought what was cool was here's a guy, instead of continuing what was great about the first album, is going to do a totally different attempt and a totally different album that was unique in and of itself. And again, I felt that True Detective in the culture that we live in now came over some judgments about political correctness or are people good or bad if they think this way and all these things that are the opposite of investigating what's fun in film sometimes right. is unevolved characters that are products of their environment right. that are going through a certain set of stakes. You know, even going back to swingers, you're dealing with a guy that isn't comfortable approaching women. There's a lot of self-doubt in that. You know, it's like when you're in college or high school and you're around people, there's a comfortability, but how do you go up to someone you don't know? Right. So there's a there's a there's a rawness to that specific to its time. Yeah. That maybe would be judged more harshly today than it was in, in, in the and, mid-90s. And maybe if True Detective were not right on the heels of season one or whatever, people had time to judge it on its own merits. You think it could have gotten more of a fair hearing? I don't know. I think it did get a fair hearing. I think, you know, uh, the response from audiences were good. It's, it's uh, well-received. I, I think... Anytime you're coming after something that was seen some way, there's that kind of initial impression. But I think that you can't really evaluate these things. You know, ultimately, everyone has opinions about stuff, and there's a consensus or not. But the, the from where I my experience of the of the show was that a lot of people saw it yeah. oh, yeah. and uh, and stayed through it. There was certainly some people that were not as encouraging as the first season, obviously. <laughs> but there was but there was a lot of support for it. Interesting enough, as well, too. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the coolest thing about it, again, was, you know, here's this guy who is, again, just doing something totally new. Right. You know, it's not the same, same. And I thought that was very cool. And then, again, I felt a little bit, there was a little bit of the kind of, well, what does this mean to the mental health of the greater country? Which is, to me, not as valid when you're just, you know, making a story about characters. Right. Well, so do you think that is what 
did that condition people as we come to Hacksaw Ridge now? Is did that factor in to Mel's desire to to reach out to you? I mean, how did that even come about? Where Mel sees you for this this part? It's interesting. The the Hacksaw Ridge experience for me is very similar to the Rudy experience. It was something that kind of came out of nowhere. Really? I had known Mel, and Mel's Mel's one of my very favorite directors. That Apocalypto to me, I remember really sticking with me a long time after seeing it. I just thought what he did was so pioneering. There's no language in a way that we know it, and these people aren't actors, and it's kind of a chase movie. And I was really just so caught up in the execution of the film, and it was so visceral. I was just blown away by that film. And so it was a call from, from Mel and Bill Mechanic, the producer, to read this movie and come do it. And in reading the script, again, I was blown away by, here's a, a stronger case of a guy who was really, I, a true story that I hadn't heard of, but was really true to his beliefs and really persecuted, who ultimately ended up, you know, saving a lot of lives and yeah. being a hero to these guys. Yeah. But it was almost like the Twain quote being stranger than, than fiction because of its limitations. I, I just was blown away by the story. Did Mel ever tell you what made him think of you for this part? Was it a specific past performance or something? I think he had recognized in, in performances I had given in the past that that I had qualities that he thought would work well within this. But he's a very good director. You know, I, I think it would be hard-pressed for an actor to work with Mel and not fit well into whatever role that they're doing because I think he has a unique ability to communicate and I think he has very good taste with stuff. But you also, I mean, I don't know too many other people that could have navigated this very tricky line where your guy has to be so tough but not to the point where you hate him or Andrew Garfield hates him and also funny. I mean, this is, it's a lot harder than I think people might uh, might immediately assume and just to read back one of many really positive responses to your performance specifically, I thought this this really captured it where USA Today was saying, quote, of your performance, quote, a revelation combining the acerbic wit of his best comedy roles with a tough guy edge and impressive emotion, close quote. And I guess just in terms of, of walking that line, do you have a sort of technique or a secret that you could share about how you how you didn't go over that line where, where we just can't, where we're not going to like this guy? You know, I can tell you what my approach was is that I have some military in my family yeah. and I've always done a lot of stuff with the U.S. Oh, yes. uh, over the years where I've gone to Iraq and Afghanistan yeah. to see the troops. I've never been a fan of the wars, but I've always empathized with the kids that were over there. I had a friend that was killed. I was in the trailer for Wedding Crashers and someone called me for makeup and a friend, someone that I knew had been killed in the war. And it really bothered me that here I was going to go get makeup on to do something that I really like to do. And then this other kid was killed, and I don't even know why. I don't know what exactly defined what, what, the, what the objective is or what, and it just really bothered me. And so I remember thinking, oh gosh, I'll go take dodgeball over, because I had shot dodgeball when it comes out. And then they'll get to see the movie when the movie comes out. And of course, the funny part of that was when I went over there, a lot of the young soldiers that came up to me had a copy of Dodgeball because people back home would shoot it in the movie theater and someone's head would be in the way. So it'd be like a screen with someone's head. They called them Haji Hunt videos. And they were literally, the movie had been out for a week and they all had copies of it. But I 
figured I was going to be okay with that if they had got a copy somehow. So. Well, my brother's in the Army, and I know I hear that your visits have meant a lot to people. It really is a terrific thing that you did with Well, them. you know, you get so much more out of those things than doing it. And I felt I just felt a calling to go when I, when I was in that circumstance. But I got a lot, and still, you know, got a lot more out of it than not. So it was always something in my background and relatives who fought and you know, World War II in the military, and, you know, my sister paid for college yeah. from the Army Reserve. So when this came across my desk, the first thing was, you got to make him an individual. E- even though he's a sergeant, is there's certain, like any occupation, but this one particularly, there's certain aspects to it. Who is the individual within this and why? And, and I talked to a lot of the people that I knew military and otherwise, and it was unique in that in our story, the, the sergeant was also going to bring them to war. So in that training, you really love these kids. It really was a place of love that I started from because yeah. I looked at them like my kids. Yeah. And I think being a parent, I really hit strongly that their lives are really responsible. Mm-hmm. Their ability to perform what they're being taught mm-hmm. under this duress, I'm really in charge of that. That's that's my responsibility. So you take that seriously. So that informs the intention right. behind the things that you're doing. Right. So you take the point of view since you're going to war that you need to get their attention. You need to establish some authority. You're going to push them past their breaking point. But you want to have a little bit of a gleam with them and bring them in because I figure since the unit's going to go, if they, if they love each other, if you learn to love right. that person next to you, right. you're going to have a, a better opportunity over there of surviving. So it was interesting in the, in the stuff, and Andrew is so tremendous. He, he has a real dignity to him that's just his. He's got a, a real sense of fairness. I was very impressed with him, all the young Australian actors, he was immersed with them. He was peers and friends with them in a genuine way. He was considerate to all of them. He would stay in his accent, but he would not do it in a way where he could not be present or joke around, you know, or connect with people in moments. He was very supportive and just very self-aware as much as he was having to go very much within. He was also very considerate of other people's processes. So. We all kind of ended up with a camaraderie, which worked. Again, you know, the set was sort of that way. I think we all believed that we were doing something that was nice because it was a true story yeah, and something yeah. that's important. So when I had those moments with Andrew early, there's almost a twinkle between us. Like, I like this kid. Yeah. So I'm kind of teasing him, but I'm doing it like almost in a teacher's pet kind of some way. Some improv, right? Also. There's some improv, and there's also, Mel would throw some lines, and there was some improv. But my intention was, depending on who I was talking to, I get the other guys to laugh a little at their expense, right. but intimidate them. But let's bring us closer together. Let's do it. Right. So I think there's a bigger betrayal right. that here we're heading down this one avenue. Right. And now he won't carry a gun, which is such an odd right. fit. Right. Especially when the threat is imminent. We, we are going to go in short order to, to go over the, to this right. place with the intention of killing these people. Right. Right. So there's a time constraint on it. So those collisions were just really fantastic for there to be a lot of different things going on within the character. So I really did approach it from that place. And then I think when you push it, that barrack scene where we kind of, he's been beaten up, that was something Mel called me the night before and said, I think we can beat what's on the page. And Andrew, myself, and Mel kind of wrote that with Mel writing it, but giving ideas and finding it. And that was good because... In that moment, you can have all... That's kind of a transition where you realize this guy really means what he yeah. says. He yeah. is who he says he is. Yeah. 
you feel bad for the person on the other side of that, especially a guy of dignity who doesn't deserve it. Right. But you're still steadfast that perhaps in the long run, this would be better for the other guys and for him. Right. So it, it had great moments that were in the script that were there based on the collision of different different things. So the last question is just this. I mean, this has received... So, the film and your performance specifically have been so well received. I, I feel like you've got to be very proud of this, but both of those things. And so where does it go from here? We've talked about phases of a career so mm-hmm. far. Is this going to in any way shape where, you know, a, a direction that you go from, from here. I'm sure a lot of people are, are interested on the, in the answer to that. For me, I think it really is, you know, feeling inspired and connected to the material, whatever it may be. I really just want to do things that I really feel kind of a calling to go do. And that doesn't mean that they have to be drama. Yeah. I, would, I would still do something comedic yeah. if I felt very passionate about it, I guess. Yeah. So I just feel in a, in a place now where the things that are coming to me and the things that I'm, I'm saying yes to are, are all things that I'm very interested in. And I'm kind of just in a place of feeling excited to, to be inspired as an actor to go and participate in things that I think are fun or interesting. Well, I hope you'll forgive me for saying, because I will never perhaps get another chance. You're so money. I appreciate <laughs> You're it. You're so money. Thank you for and doing you this. And you should know it. No, I really appreciate it. My Thanks pleasure. Enjoy your interviews. Thank you. Thank you. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.